five, four, three, two, one. Jay Cox. I've been asked to do a very unstanly thing. Talk about this masterpiece of his totally without preparation. If Stanley knew I was doing this, I would pay a heavy price. I hope he doesn't hear it. Vincent D'Onofrio. I remember this day we were all lined up in this warehouse in Beckton, which was an old gasworks plant in London, where we shot Full Metal Jacket. We grew our hair out so that we could get it cut off. Some of us were upset. Some weren't, some couldn't wait. I, I couldn't wait for it to happen. I didn't feel like my character until I had it done, so I knew it would help. Lee Ermey. As technical advisor, I'm very concerned about everything being technically correct. And uh, the only way we could get clippers that would work to cut the hair as fast as it cuts, we got uh, animal grooming clippers is what we finally found that would do the job, and it worked out great. Stanley hadn't made a movie for at least about half a decade before he started on Full Metal Jacket. Stanley, from the time of Dr. Strangelove, had made several movies in a row, unlike any other movies that were being made. These were movies that seemed to spring full-born from Stanley's will as well as his imagination. They were movies that uh, had no contemporary counterpart. This was all done because of Stanley's very eccentric, very arcane and wondrous artistic impulse. Starting with The Shining and then moving on to Full Metal Jacket, he seemed to be a little more aware of the sort of things that people were doing at that time. People had made a great many movies about the Vietnam War, and so Stanley made Full Metal Jacket. The difference being that he didn't make them like anyone else did. He made them in a kind of a wonderful artistic isolation. That's why they are so unique, and that's why they seem to have a quality that exists out of time. That's why these movies seem to get better and seem to resonate even more strongly now than they did when they first appeared. I think there was some feeling of puzzlement when people saw Full Metal Jacket because it, it came at the end of a perceived cycle of movies about the Vietnam War. Although this is a movie that's set in the Vietnam War, this is not a movie about Vietnam. And that's why when people expected a kind of topicality, they were befuddled and bewildered because they didn't get it. You, John Wayne, is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little communist shit twinkle toad cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? This was very hard for Lee, I remember, because he would improvise all this great stuff and then Stanley would write it down and then Lee would have to remember it. And Stanley just loved the things that were coming out of his mouth, but then he'd have to remember it and he'd have to do it a bunch of times afterwards. Uh, sir, no, sir! You little piece of shit, you look like a fucking worm. I bet it was you! Sir, no, sir! Sir, I said it, sir! Everything was uh, as as realistic as we could we could get it. And it, it's a good thing. Stanley was totally dedicated to realism and authenticity and technically 
Correct. My sister. You little scumbag! I got your name! I got your ass! I remember watching the playback of Matthew doing this, and I was just, at the time, I was so impressed with what was going on, and it was hard for me at that time since it was my first feature to translate in my mind what was going on set to what would eventually what it would look like on film. But with the monitor there and Stanley doing playback over and over again, it, it helped me quickly process that in my mind. And by the time we got around to my heavy stuff, I kind of clicked. Stanley, he never gave you what you expected. He was always surprising you, and he always confounded you. In this particular movie, Stanley was prescribing a world where the rules were concrete, violent, and inflexible, as in this sequence here. And then he moved out from that world into another kind of world where those rules were tested, bent, and turned into tools not only of survival, but turned into a means of either destroying your sanity or allowing you to hold on to it by the thinnest of straws. I've been around. I still I never quite heard the things that were coming out of Lee's mouth at the time. They were not familiar with the screaming drill instructor portion of me. So that was a big surprise, <laughs> a big surprise. Matter of fact, that was the first time Vince had ever been in front of a camera. It was the way that I came up and delivered it. it was right in his face, and it was screaming, it was yelling. And that bothers anybody, even if they do know you're acting. And still, if you're effective, it's going to bother. And it would upset Vince so bad he'd forget his line. Sir, yes, sir. Sir, no, sir. That name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? Sir, no, sir. I remember when this first came out in the first screening of it, my friends were all slumped in their chairs, embarrassed because... They saw the smirk on my face. They didn't get what I was doing. I didn't tell them anything about what the character was or what it was about. But as the movie went on, they understood it. Then wipe that disgusting grin off your face. Sir, yes, sir. Well, any fucking time, sweetheart. Sir, I'm trying, sir. Lee, the drill instructor, was hired because he kept writing to Stanley, volunteering his expertise as a technical advisor. Stanley said somewhere that he liked his letters could tell that he was very intelligent and kind of on a whim just asked to, to see him. And based on that meeting, he was cast. He's a familiar presence now in movies like this and has worked on a great many movies, not only as a technical advisor, but as, as an actor. Lee is not really choking me here. This is all acting. Lee was not one to, you know, lose control of himself or anything like that. And Stanley's not the kind of director that wanted real violence on his set either. But I was so happy when the scene was over because I felt like I was going to stick around for a while and get fired, you know. Lee Emery is one of the two familiar professional soldier presences in contemporary movies. Like another soldier, Dale Dye, also appears on screen as an actor. They've been there and they both, they can get that thousand-yard stare on when needs be. They give an air of verisimilitude to the movie, but it's, again, worth repeating that from the very first, this is a movie that's based in realism, but it's not a, it's not a realistic movie. Realism for Stanley was a, was a kind of a dead end. Papa, we're laying in bed. Mother and father, we're laying in bed. 
I got to know all these guys very well because we all learned to march and do monkey patrol with the rifles and how to recite our duties and things from Lee when Lee was still the technical advisor before he got hired as the um, drill sergeant. Monkey patrol is learning how to march with a rifle, spin a rifle, basically all the fancy stuff. I have been drill instructor. I spent uh, 30 months down at the Marine Corps crew depot in San Diego under the hat. Hollywood actors, uh, we had a little problem in that I couldn't get them to show up for me. When Stanley had a word with them and they began showing up, but uh, they would say, well, let the background extras do that. We don't need to, I, I can just pick it up. Uh, close order drill in the rifle manual, you cannot pick up on the set when it's time to do it. It doesn't work like that. So they uh, succumbed, we'll put it that way, and everybody worked with me, and we did well. My beloved corps. Sir, I don't know, sir. You are dumb, Private Paul, but do you expect me to believe that you don't know left from right? By this time, Stanley wanted my character to start going inside himself and finding the lunacy of what was going on. I remember putting my hat on very loosely on, on my head for this. He slapped. I figured it would sell the slap better if the hat spun. I didn't know it was going to come off, though, but I guess he used the one that came off. Watching this, I'm reminded of how it struck me very forcefully that in this scene, and we're almost 10 minutes into the movie now, Stanley has kept us all very much on the outside. These scenes were so humiliating. We were actually out in a field drilling, doing this stuff, and just like it right is right here, I'm, I have my pants down and I'm... I'm marching behind, and all the guys felt so bad for me and stuff. It all worked for the character and their sympathy, and it's just so perfect. Stanley loves these beautiful, long, sensual takes, these beautiful steady cam moves, these great tracks. The shots of, of Lee coming up and down the bunks along the barracks was something that was done over and over again because Stanley wanted it. Just the rhythm of the camera and, and Lee's movements to be perfect. And you can, if you notice the composition of these shots, they're just amazing compositions. I remember him paying, Stanley paying a lot of attention to, to that. And just because the camera is moving and just because a character is moving didn't mean that the composition had to change. Or if it did change, it should change in a way that um, was as strong as, as the last composition. And this is another example right here. It's so simple, but yet so brilliant. And here's another one. It's the same. It's looking down the same bunks, but the upper bunks, you know, it's, it's amazing stuff. My initial interview with Stanley when I asked him the eager young film reporter question, who are your two favorite directors? And he cringed, but he was very polite about it. Being young, I persisted. And he said, well, I would say David Lean and Max Ophels. You can see a lot of the, the musical logic of David Lean's editing in Stanley. And of course, from Ophel's, you can see Stanley got his affection for these great, unparalleled, long tracking shots. The lighting in there is just all uh, neon lights, and it's a very harsh lighting. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. This was fun learning this, learning all these. I think they call it drill. I'm not sure. I can't remember what they actually call it, but these um, duties, these things that you have to recite that are about keeping your your morale up and turning you into a Marine, all these little songs and these things that they teach you to say. Eddie, 
Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. The casting is extraordinary here. The actors really inhabit what they're doing. They make their roles themselves, not the opposite way around. I think that this particular character was so far from me that I lived in it while we were doing it, and I dumped it off quickly after. You know, it was such a sad character. Making something real was just a starting point. Stanley's movies really move very quickly from real to interesting, and then they move way past interesting into a kind of a compulsive fascination, total creation of a kind of an alternative world. I remember this, everybody was just so freaked out that we had to do this. It's such an odd thing to have to do. And then just after a while, after doing it about 10 times, 12 times, we just found it hysterically funny. This is all Lee Ermy did this to us. Lee is the one that made us look this sharp. Nobody else. Lee taught us how to do this. There was no other Marines there. There was nobody else. The way we look all sharp like that, that's because of Lee Ermy. This stuff I just couldn't do at all. So when you see me pulling up and trying to get up and do these obstacles, it was just impossible at the time. I'd at this point, I'd been there for maybe nine months, gaining weight and gaining weight and gaining weight. They only left me out because it was just too dangerous for me to try it. Every Marine drill instructor has been to recruit training himself. So he adopts character traits that his own drill instructors had. We were doing this for fun. Me and the, the Brits, we'd constantly fight. Before you can be a drill instructor, you have to go through the drill instructor school, which is a 12-week course. And you get really physically fit because you go for a five-mile run before chow in the morning. This is where I blew out my knee. I could actually be this take. I've never really been able to sort out if you, if you use this one or not. But I, I came down at some point. It, uh, it blew my knee out, and it just exploded. But I, I remember only doing it twice, and then I had to be rushed to the hospital. So could very well be that one. When you see the reaction shot here of Arliss Howard after D'Onofrio is being abused by Lee Emery, that's the first time we, as the audience, have ever been cued to a reaction by Stanley, which gives us some clue as to how the scene is meant to be pitched. 15 minutes into the movie, that's really quite remarkable. So Stanley has opened up this world for us and then stood aside and then just let us look. And that one shot, we've had a kind of an alternate perspective on what's going on other than our own. You are a worthless piece of shit, pal. I mean, I just could not get up there for real. I could not do it. Vince's uh, performance here was remarkable and unforgettable. I was happy that uh, we got to work with him a little bit. When he came in to read, we sat around and talked and, and had a cup of coffee, and as these things usually happen, we started talking about Stanley. I think anybody who ever knew Stanley or worked with Stanley found a kind of a commonality of wonder 
in talking about him. Same thing happened some years later when I happened to meet Arliss Howard at a film festival screening. We began immediately to talk about this movie and I told him that I knew Stanley and we spent a very long time swapping stories and dealing with Stanley with a kind of a affectionate awe, which is the sort of thing that he inspired. Contaminate the rest of the world. I will motivate you, Private Pyle, if it short dicks every cannibal on the Congo. This was Stanley's idea, um, Lee chasing me down the thing. Okay, Matthew's character, Joker, helps me be able to accomplish this. I have a brace on my knee there, too. It's right under my uh, fatigues there. My head was so filled with doing the part, it didn't matter. I just wanted to get back to work and get going. This is just the three of us on some road outside the British military barracks. And, you know, all that sweat was sprayed on us. And, you know, it's just all, this is the three of us just acting our, our butts off, you know. I'm not sure exactly how delighted people were in the midst of the work process with Stanley. He could be pretty tough, maybe at the end of the process. I think you've got a heart This was hysterical, man. I mean, he had to cut out of this because we all just uh, couldn't keep our uh, straight, straight faces. He had to eventually cut out. As you can see, some of the guys laughing. But it was an incredible shot. We watched the playback right after we did it. It just looked like a herd of buffalo coming at us. The whole shot was amazing from the beginning to the end. It was amazing. Stanley worked very fast, very fluidly, very casually with the actors. He solicited suggestions from anyone. Anyone was free to come up and tell Stanley an idea. He worked with a very small crew. It looked much less like a conventional Hollywood movie crew than like the kind of small, mobile, fast, low and mean crew that the French and Italian filmmakers use. And everyone was always very focused. I want that head so sanitary and squared away that the Virgin Mary herself would be proud to go in there and take a dump. Just like a recruit platoon, they became one, they bonded, they united. Uh, but uh, it was a good thing. That was the objective. Uh, that's what a Marine Corps recruit platoon does, and that's what our objective was to get them to bond, and they did. We all just got to know each other so well that it, some of this stuff actually was fun. I thought that Matthew was really great in this scene. He really did a good job. Don't you! Sir Negative, sir! Private Joker, are you trying to offend me? Sir Negative, sir! Sir, the private believes that any answer he gives will be wrong. When you play a, a severe character role, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult at times. It depends on what scene you're doing or how long the shoot goes for. This was a very long shoot, so it was very hard to keep the weight on all the time. Because every day on set, it was a... Not that I went home with it, but, you know, when you're playing a, a depressive type, an inward type, it, uh, it gets to you when you spend the day like that. On a long shoot, it, it can be hard. Compared to the things, you know, I've, I've done characters that are more difficult than this one, but easily, you know, 98% of the directors I've worked with were not as brilliant as Stanley. But there have been a few brilliant guys I've worked with. I've been very lucky. And women, too. This is improvised by Matthew and I. The bolt goes in the receiver. Stanley wanted us to sort out some things that Matthew could be helping me with. 
we had all learned so much about how to do this stuff, how to put, you know, we could take M16s and, and we could take them apart and put them back together blindfolded. Most of us could. I certainly could. Left one over the right, the right one over the left. Stanley allowed uh, Matthew and I to improvise the scene. I can't remember if Matthew and I figured it out before we got up there, but I seem to remember Matthew and I just riffing, and Stanley watched from a crane. And then Stanley said, yeah, do that, and then Stanley set up the shot. I thought that he went closer. He might have, and he just didn't use it. Let's throw it over. It was nice to be able to work with a guy like Stanley Kubrick and him giving you freedom to come up with stuff on the spot. I never expected that. And uh, to this day, it surprises people when I tell them. Congratulations, Leonard. I think this was one of the things that Stanley wanted us to do. I think this was his idea, how we would do it. I think Stanley typed out the dialogue on that one. Got it? You do it. This stuff is all improvised. He wanted Matthew to teach me how to do monkey patrol work, to, to do better with my monkey patrol. But he just stood us there in the shot, and Matthew and I improvised it. This is when uh, my legs started getting better. I was able to do some of the stuff. I'm actually getting in better shape, too, than I was, you know. I'm actually looking like I could, you know, do some damage to somebody at this point. I'm looking like a pretty big fellow. We have a company of superb actors here. It's hard to imagine any one of them stepping out of uniform, although we've been lucky enough to see them all in other movies, they seem to be most fixed in our imagination in these roles in which Stanley cast them. I didn't keep my distance from those actors at all. Stanley would have preferred that, but there was no way that I can teach these kids to do the rifle manual, close order drill. I had to teach Vince how to tear the rifle down and, and reassemble it blindfolded. There was no way that I could be the technical advisor of that movie and keep my distance from the actors is just impossible. The thing about these guys, these these British extras, is they weren't goofballs. I mean, I guess some of them were, but, you know, everybody wanted to do the right thing for Stanley. We were all tired and been through a lot in the movie, but when it came down to it, every, you know, nobody was screwing around with the rifles. Nobody was, you know, everybody was very serious. And I think because Lee trained us, uh, we had a lot of respect for him. You know, even though everybody knew that we were acting, before we got to the acting, Lee was very, very uh, straight with us all and really wanted us to do the right thing. At when he was the drill instructor, before he had the part of the drill sergeant. But I, I remember just enjoying this stuff. I don't remember complaining about this stuff. I think I don't think any of us were really. By this time in the film, we Matthew and uh, Arliss and I had become so close. And me and, and, and some of the other Brits and Matthew Norris and I, we, we remain close to this day. Eskimo pussy is mighty cold. Eskimo pussy is mighty cold. Mm, good. Mm, good. Feels good. Feels good. Feels good. Feels good. Real good. Real good. good. Tastes good. Tastes good. Mighty good. Mighty good. Good for you. Good for you. Good for me. Good for me. Good for me. Good for me.
these Marines in their white underwear. They're standing there like marble statues of Roman soldiers. It's an amazing image. The movie is full of amazing images, but interestingly enough, they're never images that look like they're planned out. They don't look staged, particularly. They just look as if they are observed, not casually observed, carefully observed, but nothing seems to be schematic in a Stanley movie. I just love the photography in this scene. I, I just remember Stanley spending so much time on it. And at the time, I, was, I didn't understand cinema the way I do now and photography. And I was learning most of what I know right here when we were shooting. And uh, that stuff that I learned from Stanley will never go away. Locking of scenes and composition of shots and how to be an actor and inside your role yet inside the frame in the way that he sees it. Stuff that uh, is invaluable for an actor. Are you allowed to eat jelly donuts, Private Pyle? Sir, no, sir! And why not, Private Pyle? Sir, because I'm too heavy, sir! Everybody enjoyed this scene very much with the donut. Thank God I didn't have to do it too many times. And why did you hide a jelly donut in your footlocker, Private Pyle? Sir, because I was hungry, sir! This is the shot I remember that um, they used in Time magazine when they, uh, they gave us all nods for uh, Oscars. Never happened, but that's the shot that they used in Time magazine there. I have tried to help him, but I have failed. I have failed because you have not helped me. You people have not given Private Pyle the proper motivation. He had a way of, of just saying, you know, if this is the way the scene's going to go, you know, if, then I need to put a camera here and I need to put a camera there and I need to camera there and everybody needs to adjust to my shots. You owe me for one and he would just come walk by you and say, look, you can't step to the side. If you step to the side, it's not good. It's better if you stay where you are. And, you know, when a guy like that says something to you, you listen you know, and then when you see the playback, you totally understand. I mean, look at this shot. I mean, all the heads are seen. Every head is seen in that shot. And my legs are right between. There's not one head blocked when they go down for the push-up. I mean, that's Stanley Kubrick. That's him to a T. I've thought a lot about Stanley's early work as a still photographer, and I was looking at some of his early photo essays the other day that he did for Look when he was still, I believe, a teenager or in his early 20s. And he has a real still photographer's eye, but the movies do not depend on the singular power of an image. They're also brilliantly written, in this case, by Stanley and, and Michael Herr and the author of the novel, Gustav Horsford, and then they are superbly realized by Stanley himself. I remember Matthew and I making this up, improvising. I remember Stanley was typing it, scripted it, and then uh, we shot it. I need help. I'm trying to help you, Leonard. I'm really trying. If you are a still photographer, very often will become obsessed with a single image, but a movie is a combination of images or images that flow into other images. The exercise is closing with the D'Onofrio character 
sucking his thumb. It's a kind of a payoff, as Stanley might say. I hear that that's really uh, what they do. Now, this scene is an extraordinary bit of transference that is one of the great things about this movie is that Stanley does not tell you how to feel. He doesn't whore for sympathy for any of these characters. He's creating a world of bleakness, desperation, violence, and he's taken this and he never will tell you how to feel about something. I remember there being a lot of tension. Everybody had gotten very into their parts, and this was, I think, a very tough scene for Matthew to do, being my friend for so long, and we were both so young, and we were both learning so much at the time. I think it was very hard for Matthew to get into that head, but once he got in, it was not a nice feeling for either of us. It was a lot of bad feelings between us on these days, and uh, it's exactly what was supposed to be happening. I was listening to, on my headsets, uh, to No Woman, No Cry in between takes. I remember that, uh, the Bob Marley song, and uh, just waiting. And I think we did this about 11 times, something like that. But there's styrofoam in those towels. And uh, I don't know, Stanley just really liked it. I remember Stanley really liking the way this came out that night. And I think it's like the first time he, he told me, he actually said to me that he, uh, he liked it. <laughs> you're watching Matthew Modine, who has been appointed, as it were, as D'Onofrio's guardian, actually hitting him repeatedly again and again. And it's really this. We're encouraged to, I think, believe that we'll send D'Onofrio off the deep end. He is now totally friendless and alone and desperate. <laughs> the fascinating thing is that we, too, share not only D'Onofrio's feeling, but Modine's feeling not only of regret, but the fact that this may have been, by the crazy standards of this insular world, a necessary punishment to deliver them from the unreliability of D'Onofrio's soldiering. All bets are off in this world. Just as your all bets are off, logic, conscience, all the things that help keep us human seem to be at bay here in Full Metal Jacket. By this time in the shooting, I had become more savvy in, in what I was doing there and how to make a film. What makes the grass grow? Blood, blood, blood. Now, I think he's literally taking you in and you're watching in this wonderful actor, you're watching this transformation about to take place. I think it's also part of the technique that Stanley uses to keep us all off balance is the unexpected humor, the outrageous humor of some of Lee Emery's lines, the goofy humor of some of the soldiers' answers here to his questions, all of them kind of giving us a, a chuckle at a time that we need it but don't expect it. It's not humor that kind of takes the pressure off, opens the valve, as humorous moments in serious movies are. Stanley's humor always has a kind of a cutting edge that makes you laugh and then really seems to deepen the drama. Kennedy, sir. That's right. And do you know how far away he was? Sir, it was pretty far from that book's repository building, sir. 
this was a very, very hot day. Everybody, after each take, would take their, their hats off their heads and put wet towels on their heads. This was really miserable. It was also the beginning of the look that Stanley used in several of his movies, this very intense look where your eyes go up and you go very inward. I remember us talking about it and him you know, asking me to do something that I thought looked very inward. I kind of gave him something and he said, can you put your head down a little bit and look up more? When I did that, he said, yeah, that's it. That's what I need. And that's the insanity of pile sinking hard, fast. And before you ladies leave my island, you will all be able to do the same thing. This opening sequence was so extraordinary that it seemed to stand out from the rest of the movie. It was so surprising. It was so strong, and I'm talking about contemporarily that when the second episode of the film began, I think people suffered from a kind of a, a whiplash effect, knowing what Stanley was up to, in effect, being able to recognize his music, if you've seen this movie more than once. This whole sequence becomes much more of a piece with the rest of the film. Stanley makes no judgments either about characters or situation. He just lets the characters react to each other, and he lets the world, as it were, speak for itself. I just keep thinking over and over to myself, it's not really a, a war movie. It's not a Vietnam movie. It's not a, it's a movie that uses war as a way to get at some kind of almost undefinable portrait of the way we live. But your ass belongs to the car. Do you ladies understand? Sir, yes, sir! I can't hear you! Sir, yes, sir! This was scripted. The Charlene stuff was scripted. But it was blocked by Matthew and I. We blocked it. And I, told, I showed Stanley what I was going to do, and he didn't direct me at all in this scene, actually. He just shot it. I wasn't ever sure it would actually make it into the movie. And I was shocked. I still am that it did because he just said simply, just say these words, and we got to get away with this somehow, so how are you going to do it? He did that a lot, actually. He did that a lot with Arliss and Matthew, and he did a lot with me and Matthew, where he would just say, okay, what are you guys going to do? And we would show it to him, and he'd think about it and then say, no, it's got to be better than that. Do it better. So that your action is beautiful. That's why the shot. And, and we would come up with something better. And he would say, okay, and sometimes he wouldn't say, okay, sometimes he'd want it even better and or faster. Is there any way you could do it over here in this side of the room over here? And, and then when he agreed that that was the scene, he would then start placing his cameras and we would have to abide to the composition of his shots. Stanley, who was a very articulate, very intellectual filmmaker. He had a very keen eye for absurdity. He had what you might call a very sardonic appreciation of all kinds of extremes of human behavior. I remember watching this being shot. I always liked to watch stuff being shot. It was so nice to be able to see them, these guys, these two actors doing their thing while Stanley was directing. It was a really great experience for me to, to be privy to that. I mean, it's unbelievable. I want to slip my tubes taken to your sister. 
What are you taking trade? Stanley wasn't afraid to follow characters anywhere, but he would never draw any conclusions about their behavior. Stanley always told me that his favorite part of, of doing a movie was editing, because that's where everything came to, that's where all those 30 takes <laughs> would be put together and come to life for him, you know? And he treated each film like his baby. What's your sixth general order? I was never absent from the set. I was always there. So I knew exactly what we had in the camera, what we had on film. I was anxious to see what takes of what scenes Stanley would use. I was just totally impressed with uh, the way it was edited. Kubrick makes everything so big. Every dollar that he spent, he expected that dollar to appear on the screen. Uh, I've seen directors throw money at stuff, throw money here, throw it there, just waste. But Stanley was just really tight with his dollars. And he expected every penny that he spent, he wanted it to show up there on that screen. And it, it did. The private's weapon's name is Charlene, sir. Private Powell, you are definitely born again hard. Stanley, you know, wasn't one to ever talk about story or specifics in scenes. Or if he needed a take to be better, he wouldn't use metaphors. He wouldn't try and pretend as if he knows what we're doing for a living. He would just say, I need this. I need it to be better. I need it to be faster. This is not working. You guys have to make this work. That's what you're here for. Uh, make it work. Every once in a while, he almost it would almost sound like a complaint where he would say something like, well, you just don't understand the scene. The scene is not, not about that at all. And, and, you know, it would just make us think like, well, if it's not about that, then what is it about? And then eventually, luckily, we would figure it out. But he very rarely said anything. There's only a couple times where he gave you hints, strong hints, but, you know, really just as small as... That you could, small, very small stuff. You really had to decipher, and you'd take it home and think about it and think about it. Some films just work, and you don't know why you're on the same page with somebody, but you are, you know. It's for some reason, you've thought about the same thing that they did. And, you know, to this day, a lot of this stuff in my mind is a huge question mark as to why I actually succeeded in doing the part and why I didn't get fired and how and why I understood what Stanley was talking about when he was talking about it. I remember thinking what I just said at the time as well. I really just kind of understood where to go. From now on, until the day you die, wherever you are, every Marine is your brother. We look very sharp here too, I may add. I mean, look at that head turn. That was, you know, that's the real thing, man. And again, that's Lee. He must have taught uh, thousands of guys that same thing. But of course, those guys went off to war and we just got paychecks and get to talk about the movie on special features. Stanley doesn't have conventional attitudes toward war or what he's showing or to his characters. It's part of the, the reason the movies always remain so fresh and surprising is because Stanley doesn't underline anything with his characters. He just lets things play out. You have to understand how to act to be able to give a director what he wants, especially when they're only going to give you these kind of encrypted hints. And so that, you know, me being aware that the only way a person could end up like this is if they were totally unaware of their surroundings and had gone to a place into a real funk somewhere that was not nice. 
and it was us like you know suffering from some kind of psychotic break and uh, severe paranoia and, and worthlessness as well. I mean that's that's the look. When we shot those kind of things, Stanley would expect me to get there. First, I would have to get there, and he would say, "Put your head down some more." He goes, "Are you ready?" And I'd say, "Yes." He'd go, "Action, Vincent." He say, would say, "Action, Vincent." I remember that. And I would do it, and he would linger and linger and linger, and I'd say, cut. And he goes, okay, now I'm going to raise the camera up. We're going to do the same thing again. This scene, which has now become notorious or classic, elicited gasps from the New York press screening audience when it was first seen. I remember several people leaving the theater. I'll leave it to the PhD candidates to elucidate the similarities and differences between D'Onofrio's mad look here and Nicholson's mad look at the Overlook in The, in the Shining and Malcolm. Lighting was everything to Stanley. It took Stanley, I think, five days to light the head scene. It was all white tile, and he, he wanted the lighting to kind of give it a blue tint. He wanted to light the mood. This is my last day. We shot this in three takes, and two special effect takes. I remember this shot being set up for hours and hours and hours. Stanley wanted the light coming through and spreading on the wall and just the, you know, the lines in the shot. I remember him working on it and I would go in there occasionally and just look. Now this is one of the very few times that we are being asked to share a reaction rather than bring our own, his cuts to Matthew as he watches D'Onofrio pretty much key our own growing unease and fear and suggestion of the inevitability of what's going to happen. Millimeter. Full metal jacket. We shot this in the morning. The night before, on the way to the parking lot to our cars, Stanley said to me, do you know what you're going to do tomorrow? And I said, yes. And he said, good. He started to walk away, and I heard him clearing his throat. He always used to clear his throat before he talked. And he said, just make sure it's big. It's Lon Chaney big. And this is a story that I've told before, but it was a fascinating thing. That's why I always tell the story, because it gave me the guts to do what I wanted to do. I had been working on this whole thing with the combination of this look and the voice and how I wanted to be like an animal backed against the wall with the breathing and everything. And, and, and then this guy, this, you know, Stanley Kubrick says, it's got to be Lon Chaney. It's like monster movie stuff. To this day, I don't know why it happened that way. I, it's just, you know, amazing. It was an amazing experience for me to go through. And I, I, this, in this moment, in this film, encapsulates my whole career. If it wasn't for this scene in this movie, I would have no career. And I wouldn't have the guts to get away with the stuff that I've gotten away with and all the other roles that I've played. This is the scene. Let's see how Stanley does this, how he depends on what happens in the scene for our reaction rather than trying to impose a reaction on us. It's a great idea to have him come in in his skivvies but still wearing his hat. So he's vulnerable because he's in his underwear, but he still has this piece of authority on top of his head. Stanley didn't say a word. All he said to me was that stuff that he said the night before. 
and he just knows, you know, he was just a master. I mean, he was an absolute master at filmmaking. If you see this shot, where's Matthew standing right there, Stanley was there with the monitors when they're doing the shot on me, facing me. And we would do this close-up, and the, the wide and the tight. And I, went, I would go sit next to him, and there were two chairs, and I would go sit next to him, and he'd play it back, and we'd watch it. And he didn't say anything. He just put, put his hand, I think he put his hand on my wrist. Stanley put his hand on my wrist, and he squeezed my wrist, and... He said, well, we've got this, we've, this we've got. He was, you could just see that he was thrilled with it. Stanley lets it play out, letting us absorb, and then going to the character's reaction. Our reaction comes first. Our reaction is not cued off of the actor's reaction, it's cued off of the incident. I was so, so happy. If there was anything that's uh, more joyous, and that is when you pull something off that's as uh, multi-layered as that. You know, it's with the shot and the sequence of events leading to it, and then the, just the characterization itself, and doing the right thing for the story and, and pleasing the director. It's just um, it's an amazing thing. That image always reminded me of a Ouija crime scene photograph. Ouija took stills for Dr. Strangelove, some special stills. And it was a photographer that Stanley admired very much. It looked like it could have been a picture in an old tabloid. And that's the end of my character, but not the end of the movie. Now, here we go into the second stanza of the movie. This was all built in and around London. And I know at the time, people remarked, well, that doesn't look like Vietnam, it looks weird. I don't get it, it doesn't feel right, all that sort of thing. Well, I've never been to Vietnam. I had no point of reference for this. But if it is unreal, and to my eye, it isn't, it's Stanley's very functional kind of unreality. It's the same kind of unreality that he got deliberately in Eyes Wide Shut where he reconstructed New York streets. It's familiar, it's right, but there's something subjective about it. There's something that premises a lack of reality. Naturalism for Stanley is a dead end. It's also a great use of music, and one of the few times that Stanley has ever really used contemporary music. I'm sure something that would amuse Stanley very much is that this, this sequence, uh, Me Love You Long Time, has become a, a real kind of catchphrase on a lot of the porn sites on the internet. Knowing, knowing Stanley, I, I think he would find great, albeit somewhat ironic, delight in this distinction. What do we get for $10? I think that all directors, but you know, and especially Stanley, I think they have a right to direct any way they feel like directing. Half of their job is done. All the best directors will tell you half of their job is done in casting. We all know that the best directors cast when they expect you to pull it off. They need to see their film through the lens. My feeling was he wasn't interested in knowing how we worked. He was just interested in us pulling this job off for him and his movie. You know, a lot of these guys are similar in that way, you know. Robert Altman was, was more verbal and, and loved to have chats, you know, but didn't talk about acting. 
didn't talk about how to get to your performance or anything like that. Most don't. Most guys like that that have this kind of um, visual sense that makes their films unique from anybody else's, they're all the same. In my experience, they talk very little about the process of an actor, but they talk a lot about their process and, and photography and uh, camera movement and how important music is. And, and, I mean, Stanley used to talk about that stuff all the time. It's their job, you know. And when you see playback, you know you're not looking bad. You know your performance is looking good, and you know that the shot's amazing. That little sucker really had some moves on him, didn't he? Yeah. Joker, Matthew Modine's character, seems at last to be kind of really living up to his name here. His posture has changed. His uniform, of course, has changed. Some the last time you've seen him, you know his whole body language is different from the entire first stanza of the, of the movie. And he's developed a real Joker's attitude about it. I've been almost three months, and all I do is take handshake shots at award ceremonies. You get wasted your first day in the field, and it'd be my fault. When he first earned his name Private Joker, he got it for sort of wising off with his John Wayne imitation. Here, he's kind of speaking in his own voice. Your mom will find me after I rotate back to the world, and she'll beat the shit out of me. It's a negative, Rafter, man. Okay, guys, let's keep it short and sweet today. Anybody got anything new? These scenes of getting the news out are a very fleet and amusing way of establishing the way the press was run in Vietnam. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Tet holidays like the 4th of July, Christmas, and New Year all rolled into one. Every zipper head and numb, north and south, will be banging gongs, barking at the moon, and visiting his dead relatives. Right. And Margaret and Entourage are due here next week. Today we call it Redacted. And Stanley was a real visionary about this here. This is Stars and Stripes, the official GI publication. And these soldiers have been basically converted into olive drab flax for this war, a situation that Joker seems to accept with a kind of impatient resignation. NVA soldier deserts after reading pamphlets. A young North Vietnamese Army regular who realized his side could not win the war deserted from his unit after reading open arms program pamphlets. That's good, Dave. For those who you remember Dr. Strangelove and who, who doesn't, this scene is, is kind of like a funny mirror of the war room in miniature. A bunch of guys sitting around a table, swapping views, staking their claims, and establishing a kind of a moral neutrality about what they're doing. They're talking about trivialities while death reigns outside. Where's the weenie? Sir? The kill, Joker, the kill. I remember somebody in my family showed me some stuff in Look magazine, I think it is. I remember somebody telling me that this is the photography of the guy who directed Dr. Strangelove when I was a kid. Dr. Strangelove made a huge impression on me. I, you know, I just thought it was amazing that somebody could actually have a career like that. I didn't quite understand it at that point in my life. I didn't understand how you get from taking pictures to making these big, extraordinary things that move you and that you get lost in. You know, I, you know, I was I was too young and 
and too naive about the world and about everything I've learned since then. You know, it's uh, it would be so nice to go back and watch movies without the knowledge that I have about them now. It would be so nice to be able to watch this movie and never had met Stanley Kubrick or met any of the guys in it, you know. Not because I, I wouldn't miss knowing them, just to be able to just go straight into it like people can when they don't have anything to do with it would just be wonderful. I'd love to experience that just once. Joker, I've had my ass in the grass. The scenes don't really have to lead to anything, except they become their own cadence, and they all reinforce the ultimate power of the movie, the fact that everything is kind of for sale, everything is a... Everything's a shrug, everything's about getting laid, everything's about a negotiation. Fighting seems to be somewhere else. It's not particularly important that the Vietnamese prostitute scene doesn't lead to anything. I mean, I think that scene is very, very effective, especially in contrast to what you've just seen. Sex and death and the suicide at Paris Island and the sex on the street in Vietnam. Is this what is this what people train for? Is this what they died for? What's it about? I ain't heard a shot fired in anger in weeks. That's kind of the imposed logic. These are just dramatically developed scenes. I mean, they are just stated. They have their own internal drama. I think it's wrong to try and knit them together into a consistent thematic thread. It makes more sense to look at the movie as three stanzas in this great, brutal, and upsetting film, a film that has no obvious moral compass. But if you plunge into it, trusting Stanley, I think you'll find the moral compass, bleak as it may be. Sometimes he thinks he's John Wayne. <laughs> With all anybody that's been in the business as long as I have or longer, I think only the best filmmakers, you see their film and it totally takes you. You know, when you know as much as we do, they have to be good so that you get lost in it. They have to be really good storytellers because every time that camera moves, you know it's moving, you know it's on a dolly, you know, and you're thinking, well, did he just step off a crane? I mean, you, that's what goes through my mind. I will. Now here, after about 10 minutes of kind of day-to-day -day silliness. You have this this attack on the base. This is Tet. Oh, shit. So this is a kind of a pocket version of the Tet offensive. And here again, you know, you've got some startling but very, very controlled images. And like the sniper scene that will be coming up. Both these sequences fulfill one of Stanley's great ambitions, which was to make action scenes, or scenes of military action, not only dramatic, but understandable. I think if you consider these scenes and then compare them to, say, a scene from a contemporary action movie where a lot of explosions and glass and material are thrown at you but you don't really have any idea who's doing what to whom the only way you can tell who won the battle is if the good guy is alive at the end but when you're actually watching it you have no idea 
particularly what's going on. A great filmmaker like David Lean or like Stanley can make you understand exactly where everyone is, who everyone is, and what's happening. It's very, very difficult. One of the times I spoke to him about his, his unrealized Napoleon film, I was asking him, I'm sure, a question that he was sick of hearing by that time, why he wanted to make a movie about Napoleon. And he, he said, being a great chess player, he said, I th always thought that strategy was very dramatic. And it was his ambition to make Napoleon's strategy, and he was, I guess, one of the most brilliant of all military strategists, to make that visually dynamic on the screen, but also make it understandable. Stanley would find the excitement and the clarity in the drama of what was going on, not in the chaos, but in the force of the clarity of what you were watching. Launch an offensive all over the country. I don't think I went to dailies. I saw a couple of them by accident because Matthew and I would go over to Stanley's house and watch movies sometimes. Stanley had a great screening room and he would show us movies. I think I saw Purple Rose of Cairo for the first time with Stanley and Raging Bull, I think. And I think I got to see some footage that they had shot just because Stanley needed to look at it. But most of the stuff I saw on set on playback, most of the shots that he was doing and why things were taking so long and what he was trying to achieve. He asked me right off the way if it would bother me if I watched him. And he, I said, no. And he said, I'm trusting you that it won't if you say no. And I said, it won't. You know, he goes, good. And then I would watch them. And I think that, you know, I think that I proved to him that it didn't affect my performance either way. And Because I'm not, I, I believe in many different styles of acting. And uh, I believe there's a way to stay in your character without it affecting every little thing that you do. I think you can focus on what the goal is that day and still be inside your character. This movie also has the benefit of a, the collaboration of a wonderful writer, Michael Herr, who was first, I guess, became well known for his articles that were published in Esquire about Vietnam and then collected into a wonderful book called Dispatches. He seemed to be able to write about the war from the inside in the way that the soldiers thought about the war. You seem to have from his writing the actual experience of the war. He got this from his, his use of language. He seemed to have a kind of a, a wild rock and roll sensibility, which uh, Stanley has used wonderfully here. And it's interesting to compare what Stanley does in collaboration with Michael Herr to what Francis did in collaboration with Michael Herr on Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now seems to be much more, shall we say, operatic. Full Metal Jacket seems more like a chamber piece. But then both movies seem to be after a portrait, not of a specific place or time or war, but after a portrait of spiritual chaos. Apocalypse Now, like its title, ends in just an explosion of imagery and feeling. Full Metal Jacket, on the other hand, like its title, 
remains very, very forcefully contained, jacketed dramatically, like the bullet that gives the film its title. I know about the short timers is that that's what Matthew told me when he told me he was doing a Stanley Kubrick movie. Matthew said you should pick the book up. He goes, you know, there's a part that I he goes, I haven't seen the script, but of of the first half of the movie, but there is a part available and you should send a tape. And so I made a tape and I sent it to Matthew. Matthew passed it on to Stanley. And what happened was is I ended up with the writer, Michael Hare was there, Martin Sheen, Matthew, and I. And we had Thanksgiving together in, in London. And most of the time we spent there was talking about the book. So, uh, I, but I had never read it. So I, I soon learned um, exactly what the book was about. And, and I, was, uh, I was still learning how to march and gain the weight. This was even before we started shooting. But in the book, the character is very thin, frail guy. Unlike um, what Stanley wanted it to be. I've been on a lot of film sets. It's, it's, this kind of filmmaking is, uh, if not gone, it's going. These shots, these shots right here with all this different color smoke, the blue in between and then the black smoke on top, you know, that would take days to get right. These days they do it with computer graphics, you know. Look at this shot with all those vehicles. And then watch the helicopters that come by. I think it's in this scene that come by. They just circle around and come back by again. It's the same helicopters. But, um, you know, the, the shot like that's easy. But, I mean, look at the smoke to the right, way in the background. That would all be computer graphics these days. This is actual guys setting smoke bombs, you know, two, three miles away for that shot, you know? I mean, it's Stanley Kubrick stuff. It's David Lean stuff. It's, uh, it's amazing, you know, that uh, this stuff is gone. And because of that, because of computer graphics, there will be happy accidents that happen during shots that will never happen again in film. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's great what's going on now. I'm not saying it's not, but this is, I mean, look at this shot. It's, it's incredible, you know. It's, a, it's all for this conversation that they're having, but behind it is a lot of work that's following them. Outstanding, sir. We taking care of business? And an incredible shot. There goes the helicopter again. You know, the, the helicopters, there's somebody on a walkie saying, go now, go now. Stanley wants it in now. Stanley wants it in now. You got to get in the shot now. You got to get in the shot. You know, roll that tank up. He wants a tank to come by. Roll it up now, you know. I remember Stanley on the megaphone just, uh, you know, just yelling out orders, you know. There is a, a kind of a moral ambiguity about both these movies, Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket. The tone is very different, the styles are very different, but these are movies, as it were, made by soulmates, both great film artists who are using 
the same kind of palette and coming up with totally different portrait. Apocalypse Now, of course, is about a search for a definition of of evil, a search for the embodiment of evil and the destruction of this embodiment of evil. Stanley isn't after anything is grand. He would never even presume to try and define that evil the way Francis does. He only shows us the conditions of evil, and in that there is a tremendous ambiguity. By the end of this film, you're in a kind of a no-man's land, as the soldiers are. In Apocalypse Now, the Martin Sheen character seems to have lost his way, lost his balance, and at least halfway lost his mind. Full Metal Jack is not like that. Colonel? Marine, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. I think that Matthew has to be commended for understanding this role of Joker. It's a very difficult role to play, this yin-yang thing. Very difficult. And I, I think he played it true from the beginning of the film to the end. I think that's why Stanley picked him, because uh, Matthew understands that, I think, better than anybody else I've met. Just pulls it off so, so well. In this particular scene that we're watching right at this, this moment with the general, when the general is about to make some reference to this peace business blowing over, Stanley is kind of backing into a Dr. Strangelove, Terry Southern sort of territory here. He uh, seems to be cut from the same sort of political cloth. Yes, sir. Son, all I've ever asked of my Marines is for them to obey my orders as they would the word of God. We are here to help the Vietnamese because inside every gook, there is an American trying to get out. It's a hardball world, son. We've got to try to keep our heads until this peace craze blows over. It was one of the very few, perhaps only moments in the film where Stanley is kind of tipping us a wink, showing his cards, maybe a little too much, but right, right now he's going to pull them right back again. Platoon, Hotel 2-5, around the back. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. First platoon. Yeah, through there. Now you have the reunion of the Matthew Modine character with the Arliss Howard character. Joker's going to meet Cowboy. And again, you have at this time, in this reunion, one of the first kind of a connection between people. And these two friends from basic training are going to meet and they're going to greet each other as friends. This is the, the only friendship we've seen in the movie. I never see you again, <laughs> that remains intact. It's worth noting that Joker had an enforced friendship with the Vincent D'Onofrio character. You're there, samey same. Been getting any? Only your sister. Well, better my sister than my mom, though my mom's not bad. <laughs> and now he's about to meet another character, Animal, who's kind of like the Pyle character, the D'Onofrio character, only with still some shreds of sanity left. But in the animal character, there is a certain kind of crazy purity. There's nothing 
ambiguous about his stature, about his presence, about his penchant for violence. Oh, you seen much combat? <laughs> I've seen a little on TV. He's like an alpha male establishing his primacy here. You're a real comedian. Well, they call me the Joker. Not a game that Joker particularly wants to play, but we see he's pretty good at. Can give pretty much as good as he gets. Well, Pilgrim, only after you eat the peanuts out of my shit. Adam Baldwin. This was like a crown jewel. Everyone understood that this was a movie to get in. Stanley, as a filmmaker, to me, was one of the masters. And that was scary. Now, you might not believe it, but under fire, Animal Mother's one of the finest human beings in the world. Because it's such an ill-defined art form, you are creating it as you go, and that just instills fear, I think, in the heart. Because, especially with a guy like Stanley, who would stare at you and look at you without giving you any clue as to how well you were doing. And then he would say, okay, do it again. So, in, you know, there was intimidation and respect and awe and uh, just desire, opportunity. All these emotions were flowing through. And with Stanley, as a, speaking in retrospect as a 23-year-old, I was scared to death. My God. <laughs> this is his party. It's kind of tempting to see Stanley using Rafterman, the photographer here, and a little later the filmmaking crew who appear in the uh, third stanza of the movie as kind of surrogates for himself. In a way, he's kind of making a comment on the process of recording and process of dramatization himself. This is his way of putting into his own work what he does and what people like him do. If there had been a war when Stanley was a Look magazine photographer, would he have gone to it? Would he have been rafter man? It's also interesting that having made a great overtly anti-war movie like Paths of Glory, that Stanley would take up the ambiance of war again, but with a totally different aim in mind. I think that Paths of Glory does bear down brilliantly and unsparingly on the madness of war. What's most unsettling about Full Metal Jacket is that we expect most war movies of good conscience to be about the madness of war, and this is not. It's about the perpetual moral uncertainty of the world as seen in war. So Kubrick came to us one day and said, okay, draw whatever you want on your helmets, right? Joker's gonna have Born to Kill. The rest of you can, if you want, mark up your helmets, whatever. So Animal Mother's helmet cover said, I am become death, which is taken from Oppenheimer's quote of the Sanskrit poem, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, when Oppenheimer saw the first nuclear blast at Trinity site. I thought, wow, oh, this will be cool. Yeah. This shot of those explosions, you know, today that would be computer graphics, you know. 
those big giant explosions coming towards them at the the tanks, you know, real tanks and, you know, with real actors standing behind the tanks. I mean, that's tough stuff to do, man, for the explosions to really work, you know, just all that to come together. It's big stuff, man. It's still big stuff. It's like five guys in a shot behind a tank and these explosions from the ground are going off. It, all their postures, their spines, everything changes. You know, that's stuff that people can't act. It's like, it's like uh, basic urge stuff. It's stuff that happens to our body, not stuff that we make happen to our body. You know, you can mock it, but, you know, that stuff is happening right there. Our bodies react to explosions. They just do. We are receiving incoming fire from the bill. The lieutenant is down. We're going to stop here and check out what's in front of us. Over. Stanley's main concern. His concern is establishing a world of unreconcilable ambiguity, which I believe for Stanley was the real world. And I think one reason that he cared so much for his family, why his family life was so important to him, they were kind of a bulwark against that ambiguity that he explored in his work. They were the foundation. There were two things in my observation that Stanley loved the most and meant the most to him. His work and his family, everything else was secondary. I remember the Steadicam shot, the amazing Steadicam shot, where Stanley does this running Steadicam shot where gathers in one place and then moves on and gathers in another place. It was an extraordinary shot. I remember watching it on the monitor and thinking, my God, how do you do this? At the time, you know, Steadicam was still young, you know. Um, not a lot of people had the guts to use it still. And I remember thinking it extraordinary. When it was released, this movie was released, I remember being disappointed that Oliver got his movie out before Stanley. Because I remember being done, you know? And why Stanley waited, I'll never know. Because I always, I always felt like Stanley's deserved to be out there first. But, you know, Stanley Kubrick is telling everybody will take his film whenever it's released, you know? Me, I'm just this young, anxious actor, you know, that wants you know, to be out there and to be in a Stanley Kubrick movie and for everybody in the world to know it. You know, that's how I was thinking back then. I was a kid. I think anybody would. I don't know. I did. The thing about Oliver's movie, there's a lot of great performances in it. And the thing about Stanley's movie, it's just, it's just extraordinary in a whole. You know, as, as a whole, it's extraordinary. It's a whole piece. The narration in Oliver's movie is fantastic because it's it's Oliver's deal and he went through it and so the narrative in it is fantastic. You can't you can't beat it. It's it's pretty damn good. But this is this is a Vietnam plus weirdness beyond belief. You know, Full Metal Jacket is just an amazing piece of work, just the whole thing is the way it's constructed, the beginning and then the end, 
the way they seem separate almost, but at the same time they don't make sense unless they're together. It's, it's a fantastic thing, you know. The images in both halves of the film are so strong. The stuff around these buildings, this guy looks like James Cagney here. You know, these faces and that we've never seen before and we'll never see again, you know, of these soldiers, this is extraordinary stuff, you know. Here's another shot. They're just plowing through in tanks, actors on the tanks, actors next to the tanks, you know. Helicopters really landing right there, and those palm trees were flown in from Spain. Most of them are in planters sunk in, sunk in the ground. They're actually in planters. Yeah, big uh, shipping crates used as planters. You know. That's one of the things that makes the movie unique. It's unexpected insistence on not making judgments, not on why we're in Vietnam, not on what the people are doing when they're there, not on any of that. Now, this is, I think, Stanley's putting himself in the movie, putting what he does in the movie. This is a real David Leanish sort of shot. You've got three kinds of parallel movement moving, camera moving right to left, camera crew moving right to left, people with stretchers moving left to right, and then stationary soldiers. They're extraordinary, beautiful scene. The firing of this tank gun, and then the cannon shoots, and then the, watch the building in the background, boom. You know, that was a real, you know, gas bomb going off in that other building. And the timing has to be perfect. The guy playing the sound guy is the actual sound guy in the movie. And all these actors who've been full of mud and sitting behind these rocks and tanks and things for months and months and months. And then there's that one take that Stanley's happy with that comes out, and it's like perfection, and it's all worth it. They watch it on the playback, and they think, my God, this is why we're happy, because we're in a Stanley Kubrick movie, and only he can do this shot like that. This scene is rather like Stanley's reply to the conventional war scene where the buddies say goodbye to the fallen. Only the tone in this movie is a whole lot different. It's distanced, it's a little bit stunned. It's a little bit stunted emotionally. But we get the impression that any kind of emotion that might have been felt by these characters has been wrung out of them and shot out of them by what they've been going through. Better you than me. They're speaking very, very honestly, brutally, but honestly. No one's making excuses here, and no one is being sentimental. You're hard put to find a sentimental moment in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Flush out your head, you new guy. Think we waste scoops for freedom? This is a slaughter. Animal Mother is the machine gunner in the Lost Dog Squad who basically says whatever's on his mind. He doesn't have any other agenda than to win. He thinks, what the hell are we doing here if we're not going to just destroy the enemy? It's all set to get shipped out on a medical. What's remarkable here 
is that when the interviews begin, you get very simple, forceful answers from the soldiers. You get answers to unanswerable questions that are as honest as the answers can possibly be. You get the sense that these men don't know any other answer. And you also get the sense that Stanley is suggesting there are no real answers for those questions beyond what these men are saying. And that is what makes the film so troubling and what takes it out of the immediate parenthesis of Vietnam and puts it into a much wider context. I had the sense watching this that this is a moment in the film where the filmmaker almost allows himself a kind of a solidarity with the characters. Guys in a world of pain trying to dismiss it, rationalize it, and explain the unexplainable. If they hadn't been asked the question, they would never have even tried. When we're in Hue, when we're in Hue City, it's like a war, you know? Like what, 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 I, thought, what I thought about a war, what I thought a war was, you know, was supposed to be. This is Arliss just riffing. He's just making this stuff up. He's an intense actor, Arliss. I love him to death. He's great. Nobody could have played that part the way Arliss did. Nobody. When the shit really hits the fan, who do they call? They call Mother Green and her killing machine. Do I think America belongs in Vietnam? Um, I don't know. I belong in Vietnam. I'll tell you that. Apocalypse Now is one of the reasons why I moved back to New York to be an actor. I mean, I was in college in Colorado, and I picked up a Wall Street Journal that was laying on the cafeteria table, and I read a story about the deer hunter in Apocalypse Now. And I said, you know what? I'd like to be involved in stuff like this. And I came back out here. In Coprilla had this obviously evolving conceptual idea that was like constantly evolving throughout the whole shoot of the thing and it, and it became what it is because of that and deer hunter was an intense intense war movie but really just truly about the human experience uh, of this small group of people in this in, in their relationships you know i think that in a way that these those three films compare more than oliver's film because they're so conceptual i think in a broad sense, in the broad sense of it. Yeah. Michael Cimino had this story to tell, and he wanted to tell it in such an in-depth human way, like through the human experience instead of the experience of war. You, you know, using the war as a kind of foil character to move the plot along. I mean, I'm here to take combat photos. Matthew and Arliss and I went uh, down to 9-11 the day after it happened and um, walked and talked with uh, firefighters and helped um, with morale and stuff like that. Um, I think it was the U.S. Marshals that asked us to come down. I think Matthew instigated the whole thing. He's like that. He always seems to know where to go and to what the right thing to do is at the right moment. Uh, Deborah Winger also went with us. It was intense. It was mostly intense because of the guys uh, really needed help with the morale, whoever was, uh, you know, taking body parts away. I, uh, I wanted to meet interesting and stimulating people of an ancient culture and killed them. Even the dogs. The dogs were getting depressed because they weren't getting any live hits. So they would take the dogs to the Javits Center and they would hide somebody for them and let the dog find them. Somebody live, so cheer them up. There's no way that you can actually get the effects of war in music and film in a painting because once you 
aestheticize war, you're already taking it one step away from reality. So I think the best thing to do is to use war as a kind of a canvas for dealing with even larger issues. The scene with the uh, Vietnamese hooker that starts off the second stanza of the movie, well, this scene is going to end the second stanza of the movie with a real perfect symmetry. I think that these guys, when they were together, Matthew and Arliss, when they were together with the rest of these guys, I think their experience must have been more fun, I think. I think it must have been uh, monotonous at times, and, and, and they were all leaning on each other because they were all complaining about how long everything was taking and stuff like that. Because it was a true, huge thing, you know, it took forever. Arliss was my hero on that set. I had the highest respect, I think, for Arliss of all the guys because he was the funniest to me. He was the strongest uh, spiritually. He was very, this is what we're doing and we're gonna do it. He was a leader because of his experience and his, he was just organized. He knew what the scene was and he was gonna be in charge and he took charge as cowboy. I believe all this was shot at an abandoned gas works outside of London. To me, it looks remarkable. I think the point is, if you take the people out of here and you're left with the landscape, the landscape could be any war-torn place anywhere. Could be Sarajevo, could be Africa, could be Vietnam. And I think that was part of Stanley's point. I found this kind of interesting how the alpha male steps in at the last minute here and goes first with the hooker. And it's all kind of accepted and not put on any kind of racial basis. All these guys seem past that sort of thing, interestingly enough. There seem to be different issues at hand. And now the third stanza of the movie has begun. I was fascinated by something that Stanley said, where he said he very much liked that you don't know much about Joker, or you don't know anything about the previous lives of any of these characters. Stanley liked that. And it is, when you think about it, kind of remarkable. You know these people only in these circumstances. No, as they say in the jargon, no backstory. They are entirely who you see here. These characters are creations of the military and of this situation. that those buildings just burning all day, day after day after day. I mean, look at this shot. It's amazing. 
That's an amazing shot right there. The wire bent up on the side there on the right. But the flames, it's just amazing. Those windows full of, you know, hell and ugh. Yeah, they're backlit by fire. You know, it's so intense. Hotel One Actual, this is Cowboy. It's so great. You know, the way he saturates all the colors, their uniforms, their, their flesh, you know, it's amazing. Murph, this is Cowboy. These uh, buildings, these broken buildings would have to actually shift sometimes from the heat. You would hear them shift. I used to walk around the sets and we'd pick up old shells and every once in a while you'd hear, you'd see this big, huge structure and your noise would be coming from there and the building was shifting from being exposed to so much heat all day long, every day. They were huge structures. I'm squad leader. Anywhere, scumbag. So I remember when Arliss and Matthew had to switch over to the boot camp stuff. The Vietnam stuff was shot first before the barracks stuff. I had already been hanging out with them in London, going, having coffee and stuff like that, and trying to get an idea of what their experience has been so far. But, you know, I really couldn't get a sense of it. But I could get a sense of it when we were all together, like when I was in the mess tent having lunch when they were in the mess tent with the other guys having lunch. It was a very different thing. And when they came over to start doing the Paris Island stuff, it took Matthew and Arliss a while to, to get into that, the beginning of the film, you know, not as far as their acting, but as a sense of getting to know everybody and getting into the experience that I've been going through with learning how to, to become, you know, this kind of movie marine with, with these other British men that were trying to become movie marines too, you know. I'm sure Matthew and Arliss had totally different, uh, had a totally different experience with the Vietnam stuff than they did with the boot camp stuff. I think we're here, and we should be here. He never got clobbered by Stanley during the movie. His movies are very unusual, and they seem to gather force after you've seen them. They are extremely emotional and forceful as an immediate experience, but they are even more forceful in recollection. What do you think? So here's the famous wall that took forever to get over. If you meet any of these guys ever, if you mention this wall, they'll remember it. Meanwhile, it's a great scene. I remember watching the scene the first time and thinking, my God, I they actually don't know what they're doing. They're actually lost. They're lost in the middle of a city. The way Arliss plays it, he plays it so, like, naturalistic. It's like, shit, we're lost, man. And it's like, you know, they're just sitting around waiting for this guy to make a decision. He's, he's cowboy, you know. He's like, shit, man, I don't know, you know. It's so great. Okay, listen up. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're changing direction. Now this is, uh, to contrast this with Apocalypse Now, say the, the famous helicopter flights with the ride of the Valkyries, which is a full bore operatic extravaganza compared with this, which is like a scene from Sam Fuller's, say, The Steel Helmet, which is very ordered, very precise, and gets its ruthless tension from its simplicity. Watching these guys get 
shot by the sniper has the terrible inevitability of listening to seconds get ticked off on a clock. This Peck and Paw stuff, it's fantastic. It's, you know, Stanley knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that it was Peck and Paw. He knew exactly what he was doing. I remember making my first realization that one director appreciates another director and is influenced because of when they were shooting this scene and watching one of the playbacks. And somebody saying, yeah, Stanley wants it to look like Peck and Paw. All of us, and I believe Stanley as well, admired the great war photographs of Robert Caput. He seems to be emblematic of the dashing, risk-taking artist, and he was a fantastic photographer. But what's fascinating about Full Metal Jacket also is that its lack of aesthetic distance from the subject matter. A certain aesthetization is inevitable. If you're going to make a movie, then, you know, you're, you're not participating in the reality. But the movie seems at once very focused and precise and very, very unadorned. There's nothing beautiful about this. It's only harrowing. And that's Stanley's voice on the radio. Most of the voices on the radio are Stanley. Click north of checkpoint four. Believe possible strong enemy forces occupying buildings in front of us. Request immediate tank support. Over. Well, Stanley was a great cinematographer himself, and I think it's no secret that Stanley took a very, very strong hand in shooting his own movies, and I think on some occasions operating himself. Composition was very, very important to him, but when we think of composition, we usually think of something very formal and academic. And what you're looking at here is something that's very ordered, but seems to be very spontaneous at the same time. This looks like something that could have come from a snippet from what the writer Michael Arlen called the living room war. It doesn't look like something a TV photographer would have shot, but it does look like something that a still photographer for life or look might have shot. But again, without the insulating factor of too much aesthetic. Stanley wants to make it immediate. He wants the experience to be immediate. one of the few uses of a zoom in the movie. It's such an important shot. It's the first point of view of the sniper. And he just cranks the lens and just, it's amazing. It's so bare bones, so raw, you know, and it works. And gives you a kind of anxiety. It's kind of an anxious thing. Stanley brings you into the movie without without needing a lens to bring you closer. It's hard not to watch it without becoming totally absorbed in it. Murph, 
This is cowboy over. And it's remarkable that someone who was spared the horrors of what he's depicting here should have been able to depict it so indelibly. The ability to do that doesn't come from research or conversations with lots of soldiers. What brings it off is something very deep and dark inside. Okay, listen up. It strikes me that this must be really what it's like to be in a life or death situation. And this coming from a filmmaker whose idea of a life or death situation was getting on a commercial airliner. Wait a minute, hold it, hold it, nobody's pulling out. There's only one fucking sniper out there. Back off, mother. I'm calling the plays. I say we're pulling out. When something worked, you know, you, you could see he was, you know, he was happy with it. You know, he wouldn't like say yes or anything like that. But he was happy. But most of the time, the guy just wandered around thinking. You know, a lot of the time, he was had his head down, and he was walking around on his own, thinking about stuff, kicking rocks around on the ground, and um, pacing around and thinking. Now, this one shot, Stanley's bringing us along. He's making us run into the thick of the action here. I remember this being shot. They must have done it. I don't know how many times. On a steady cam, it was very difficult. They were trucking backwards pretty hard, you know, with them shooting these these rounds, you know. I mean, they're, they're blanks, but they're heavy-duty blanks. They're really packed in there. Get that big burst of flame, you know. Doc. I used half loads and full loads. A full load with a, with a 30 caliber like that is a huge blast. You know, you can feel the, the puff, you know, you can feel the percussion. I mean, that if you put that barrel against your body, it'd blow a hole in your barrel, whether there's a bullet in there or not. With a, with a half load, that thing would blow a hole in you. Really would. That's a heavy duty machine gun right there. But Adam seemed to handle it just fine. Remember, this is a day he's wandering around the set. That was what was cool about Stanley, too, is he would throw in these little gems. Like, oh, let's try that, see how that works. He's walking around going, here, Adam, what do you think of this song? That's uh, My Way. Who does it? That's Sid Vicious from Sex Pistols. I was like, oh, that's cool. What do you think? Goes, I'm thinking of ending the movie with it. I was like, oh, that would be great. He goes, hmm. He just sort of saunters off. So he would have these little gems of just this twisted sense of humor he would throw in there for us. And we go, oh, okay. So I still, to this day, would love to be in a, a war movie, you know, because I didn't get to do it in this film, you know. Last thing I ever want to do is another boot camp movie. You know, I've been offered those before, and I, I just have no interest at all. I think I've done it the best you could possibly do it, and I just never want to do it again. But I've always wanted to play a, some type of uh, realistic military person. I'm not sure I would have wanted to wait around behind this wall as long as these guys did, but and there they go, finally over the wall. I remember the day that they came back to the mess tent after that. They were all just so thrilled that they finally got into the um, 
this intersection of buildings where the sniper is. They they were just all so thrilled, and then it went pretty steady from then on. It was I think it was just a a huge thing. I think uh, uh, the geography of the moves into that square was just so huge and had to be done so. You really had to have get a feeling of that they actually are moving on and are going into an area this doesn't look like every other area and that very tough thing to do when you have when you're basically working on a set you're not working in a real city so it doesn't have a natural geography it's a geography that you made up and now you have to translate it to the audience very hard thing to do and uh, I think that's why it took so long Donna give me that radio this was so sad when Arliss's character got killed. <laughs> Actors are such saps, you know. It's, I, you know, I still don't like to watch it. Just because it's a buddy of mine, you know. But I remember them shooting it. And he, I remember just thinking, fuck, you know, he, he can die good. This guy dies good. I mean, Arliss knows exactly what he's doing right here. He knows exactly the way he looks, exactly what his posture is. He knows exactly what he's doing. This whole sequence, which is about oh, 30, 40 minutes long, I guess, is composed of a remarkably few number of shots. The way Stanley liked to hold master shots, we see the payoff for that here, payoff in terms of performance, payoff in terms of tension, payoff in terms of dramatic verisimilitude, payoff in terms of the humanity of the situation. Now this is all going to be, if I remember correctly, this is all one shot. And I don't believe Stanley's gonna to cut to reactions again here either. I, I vaguely remember being involved in a meeting where Stanley was, how do you think it should end? Uh, I, d I don't recall the details. I, I know that Matthew writes about it in his book, saying that he thinks that Joker should live, whereas Joker originally was supposed to die. I, I think I was still stuck on the mantra, like, we should just win. Whatever it is, we should, we should walk away winners. And I don't know that... Uh, you know, he necessarily agreed with it. I mean, walk away singing Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse. Um, but I, I kind of had my glory as like, well, okay, I got the I got the head and I got that scene and that's sort of like the victory dance and I get all that, um, which was subsequently cut out. Matthew's book is a good book on, on this movie. Everything that he says in that book is true. The nice thing is that it's, you know, it's his point of view, you know, and it's nice. I like that. He's not trying to share point of views. It's a great book. Now, the second huge surprise for the audience with whom I saw the film for the first time is about to come up. 
The first was the freak out and the killings in Paris Island, which elicited a huge gasp, and then the, the revelation of the sniper here also elicited a huge gasp. And it was Stanley at his most challenging. It was Stanley upping the ante one more time, which of course he loved to do. It makes it so much more challenging and effective that the sniper is a young and very attractive woman. You expect, because of that, all your gender stereotypes come into play and are totally, immediately refuted. And it's not often seen to have um, a woman um, blown away like that. It happened to the heroine in Bonnie and Clyde. It happened in uh, The Wild Bunch, very memorably, and it happened here also very memorably, but for a different purpose with different consequences. I especially got to experience that last scene, the sniper scene. I got to watch a lot of it because I was hurt and my leg was still recovering, and I would have uh, to go to um, to work on my leg, and then I, after that I would go over to the set and watch. And I got to I got to see him shoot all of that um, all of that sniper stuff, the girl sniper, and how they in the circle around them when she's dead. And it was a very heavy scene. Nobody was. Uh, I'm very happy those days that they were shooting that scene. It was very heavy for everybody, I think, for Stanley and for the assistants and uh, for the actress herself and uh, the guys. And it was not a happy situation. Here, you have the impression that the last vestige of Joker's civility is about to be challenged and discarded. He's going to get first blood here. And what does that mean? Now, originally, I believe, at least in the script, what was called for after Joker gets his first blood is that uh, Animal, wanting to retain his position as alpha male, cuts the girl's head off. That was intriguing, challenging, upsetting, crazy. You know, it's, it's I, I can see that in my imagination. And I regret not ever being able to see it out of curiosity. But my instinct tells me that what Stanley went with here is much better. It's more subtle. It's more ambiguous because it's less overtly cruel. Again, he goes with the simplicity.
This scene is an ironic reprise of the earlier scene with saying farewell to the buddies. It's framing the sequence of shots, the momentum, all echo that with deliberate ironic effect. I don't think Stanley means us to think of this as we're watching it, but this is one of the things that will occur to you after you've seen the movie, as you think about it, or with repeat viewings, you'll understand how he reinforces the impact of this scene by summoning memories of the last by using the same visual patterning. What a rut. I do know that Stanley enjoyed the privilege of never having to preview his movies if he chose not to, and he chose not to. But Stanley, being a very pragmatic guy, was always very open to changes. After the disastrous press screening of 2001, he cut 17 or 18 minutes out of it. I know he trimmed the ending of The Shining. I know that he passed on before he could quite put the finishing touches on Eyes Wide Shut. It's unclear to me if Stanley did any post-completion fixes on Full Metal Jacket. I'm not trying to run this squad. I'm just saying we can't leave her like this. I think if there are any main themes from Full Metal Jacket and from his war films, would be that war always destroys, be it the character, be it the psychology, be it the, uh, the sensibility. It's, it's, it's a destructive force, yet necessary. Uh, he was never reluctant to go to war psychologically, intellectually. Oyster. You have the sense that after this horrifying interlude, but the sort of thing that one is led to believe probably happens in this war and in every war all the time, every day, you're led to believe that these soldiers hold on to themselves by retreating into a kind of a willful childishness. That's the Mickey Mouse Club song. They're hiding within their own boyhoods, using a kind of a juvenile fantasy as a way to shelter from and maybe shirk off the horror that they've just confronted and in which they have partnered. You knew that you were doing a movie about Vietnam. But more than that, you knew you are doing a Stanley Kubrick movie. You would end up in scenes like Matthew and Arliss did marching, singing the Mickey Mouse song. You'd end up in scenes like I was in the bathroom, uh, behaving like an animal, and the breaths and the look on my face, and everything that built up to that, the, the whole inwardness of the character. It's just this Stanley Kubrick's vision, you know? It's just unbelievable, and it's so much about tone and and he creates this feeling and this anxiety and, and and they just come from the movement and placement of his camera and the way he, he uses score 
um, in the way he directs his actors to be on the set. They're allowed to act in a realistic tone, but with a heightened reality. Well, I really think that the Mickey Mouse scene pretty much explains the whole deal. That's the way you pretty much felt during the whole shoot, like that. I'm very happy he ended it this way, ending it with the kind of conscious diminuendo of this ending, the singing of the Mickey Mouse Club tune, was so surprising and yet so fitting. It was an ending that you never forgot, and you thought to yourself, how come nobody ever put this stuff together that way before? But that was, yet again, another illustration of the uniqueness of Stanley. The Mickey Mouse Club song was in the short-timers novel, but not at the end. Stanley uses it here to unforgettable effect. And how does it make you feel about these guys? How does it make you feel about what you've seen? I think the answer to that is simple. You don't know how you feel. And it's because you don't know how you feel that you keep thinking about this movie and keep feeling about it. Then eventually you realize how you feel. And you feel, at least in terms of the film, totally fulfilled. This is a movie that changes the way you think about movies and about what movies can do. Thing happening to you. 